listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with me. Today, I have stories about Wu-Tang Clan coming up. I got a little Wu-Tang, because cash rules everything around me. But apparently, cream, cash, get the money, dollar, dollar, bill, y'all. But apparently, rule of law is not something that is happening in this country. Where, Where are the federal authorities to deal with the blockades that are going on? How much longer? Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says he has been briefed on the rail blockages that continue in support of the opponents of the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline project. Via Rail says, well, it has to continue to suspend trail uh, train service between Toronto, Ottawa, and Montreal. And CN Rail says it might have to shut down giant portions of the entire rail network. How much longer? How much longer? Justin Trudeau is out there campaigning for a U.N. Security Council seat. Nice photo op. He was in Senegal. And here's what he had to say about the situation that is beginning to really cripple this country and cause a lot of people to ask, where are the authorities? We recognize uh, the important democratic right, and we will always defend it, uh, of peaceful protest. This is an important part of our democracy in Canada. But we are also a country of the rule of law, and we need to make sure those laws are respected. That is why uh, I will be, I am, uh, encouraging all parties uh, to dialogue to resolve this as quickly as possible. Dialogue. How many more days of dialogue do we have before the rule of law returns? And this is happening not only in our city, in east of our city, in Belleville. We're going to take you there to Morgan Campbell, who is at the protest site, with an update on what's going to happen there today, what is expected to happen later today. Meanwhile, in British Columbia, roads blocked. The legislature in Victoria blocked. Access denied to ministers, to the press. Eventually, the speech from the throne was able to get underway in British Columbia, but what are we expecting today in B.C.? Grace Key is a global news reporter in Vancouver, joins me on the line. Hi, Grace. Good morning. What's going on in Vancouver right now? So there was a major uh, block in one of our main intersections in Vancouver, not in the downtown area. It was just outside of the downtown area, but it was definitely a very a main arter- uh, arterial for us. It was near a hospital, a lot of medical buildings. So they started around 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'd say maybe at the height of it, there were roughly around 300 people or so. Uh, by the time that we got back there uh, this morning, early this morning, I'd say it was about 5 o'clock in the morning, the numbers had considerably dwindled down, maybe about 60 or so, and they were already starting to pack up and leave. So by the time the morning commute hit, uh, that uh, intersection was back open. So the reason they're leaving is because there is going another march that's scheduled for 10 o'clock our time, so a little less than an hour. It's going to be downtown Vancouver at the B.C. Supreme Court. And the reason that they're going there, from what we understand, is that they're going to be um, filing, uh, launch a challenge against the Vancouver Port Authority's injunction. 
So there was an injunction that they had uh, because there were protests going on in Vancouver at three different ports. There was another one going on in Delta, which is just south of us as well. Yeah, and but, police actually uh, removed protesters, which, you know, in this portion of the country, this part of the country, we're thinking, well, why isn't that happening here? Yeah, so there was there was a court injunction, though, that was, so it was a court order. And so after about, I think it, they were going into their fourth day, I believe, at uh, at least one of the ports, that's when um, the police moved forward to um, issue out that, that court order that, had to have them all removed. Yeah, we have that here too. We just haven't acted upon it. The OPP hasn't done anything about it. Grace Key is a global news reporter with the latest what's going what's going on in Vancouver. Just give me a sense, Grace. You know how are people in Vancouver handling this? The you know often I I know from living out there that the traffic there is as bad sometimes as you know worse than it is in Toronto. So getting around the city with these protests is going to be a big deal. Yeah, it certainly has been a big deal. I mean, when you talk about the ports as well, people were not able to get into these, these. These truckers were not able to go get in. I mean, obviously, that affects their livelihood and how they're paid. They're paid by, you know, each each load that they, they bring in. So that greatly affected, you know, the working guy who's trying to make a buck here. Uh, there's also the intersection that I just mentioned that was um, from yesterday into early this morning. That was also near a hospital. And there's a lot of medical buildings surrounding, obviously, this hospital as well. So the ambulances, uh, if they did have to go that way, they did have to get uh, rerouted. Obviously, people who have medical appointments, that might have affected them and how they were getting there by bus or something like that. So that certainly did have a big impact. It's also a major uh, bus route to get to the university. So that one did have certainly a big impact on everybody. Grace, thank you so much for being on the program. Mm-hmm. That is Grace Key, Global News reporter, reporting from Vancouver, what's going on in British Columbia. The visuals yesterday from Victoria especially were kind of crazy. You know, you'd see reporters climbing over ledges and basically through windows and stuff to be able to get into the legislature because their access was being blocked by protesters. And then you hear Grace talking about the fact that, well, they had an injunction, so that way they, you know, they were able to remove these protesters from the port, But meanwhile, here we are in still the same situation unfolding east of Belleville, court injunction, and yet no action by the police. That is expected to change later today. But precisely how will the police move in? And you heard the prime minister earlier. You know, it's, well, you know, you... You know, you, you can demonstrate, but we have rule of law, but keep talking, but, you know, I'm going to pose for another shot with Maasai. I mean, what is going on? Where is the leadership in this country? Where is the rule of law? I think as citizens, we have a right to expect that, yes, you can protest. Yes, peaceful protests are allowed. But civil disobedience, at some point, intersects with the law and with the rights of the rest of us. I don't mean to just sweep aside whatever discussion we're having about a pipeline. And keep in mind the reports out of and you know the reports out of that area that is the band that is opposed to the pipeline going through. They are not elected. So it's difficult to know, and you know, it's difficult to know, do they actually have 
the authority to you know say no to this pipeline and and then it, it just kind of spirals from there and and you get this sort of situation where people are just now protesting to protest i think that's where we are and the question has got to be how much longer how much longer until the police move in we're trying to get to Morgan Campbell, who is standing by at the uh, intersection. At the, and I'll just paint the picture for you if you haven't seen the visuals. It's a kind of a snowy level crossing east of Belleville. Not much there. A couple of trees. And then there is a large truck with a snowplow on the front. There's a porta potty and some flags and people there. And there's been an encampment. It has been growing over the last couple of days. So how much longer until police can move in, and are they actually in conversation with these people? I mean, that, I, that is the, you know, I'm not advocating you go in there swinging the batons, but at some point there has to be a conversation that has a deadline to it. And what we're hearing is that that deadline is later on this afternoon. Is that true? Welcome back to the program. I want to quickly go east of Belleville to Morgan Campbell, who is live at the blockade site with an update. Morgan. tell you so far is that a second blockade has been set up on the rail line. Uh, just further down the line near County Road 49, my understanding, we're actually going to check it out now, Alan, is that uh, it's blocked by members from Oknesosne First Nation. Uh, that's the First Nation that's located near Cornwall. At this point, uh, they are at this, uh, at this demonstration growing in numbers. We know that the OPP does have community liaison officers on, uh, on site willing to talk. They haven't been speaking with anybody at this point today, but yesterday there were two separate meetings, Alan. So you're saying we have a second blockade uh, or, or one that has just grown larger? It's a second blockade. My understanding after speaking with demonstrators was that that blockade was set up at some point yesterday. I know that they did spend the night there and that they had some fires there. And uh, I haven't physically had a chance to check it out yet. I'm on my way, Alan. But I'm told that they're blocking not just the rail line, but the overpass uh, as well. So is there a sense amongst the demonstrators that they are expecting something to happen today with the OPP? Well, we know that the OPP has brought in additional officers, um, cruisers. I've been told from uh, by demonstrators that uh, you can actually see some unmarked cars that uh, are on the reservation with no plates. Um, I, myself, I, I haven't noticed that. Um, but the OPP, they have brought people in. They have those, those liaison officers standing by, ready to negotiate with these folks. But I'll tell you, Alan, after speaking with them, I spoke with an elder named George, and George told me that uh, he's 79 years old and he doesn't care if he needs to stand there until he's 89 years old. He will not be leaving this blockade. Morgan Campbell with the very latest East of Belleville. Morgan, I appreciate you being on the program. 
Thanks for having me, Alan. All right, so we're staying on top of that developing story. The other story we're watching very closely is Stephen Lecce. The education minister is speaking downtown, and members of the union are actually in the room and expected to have some kind of a demonstration. Uh, Travis Danraj is there. We'll get to him as soon as something happens. But I want to turn to Christy Blatchford, longtime newspaper columnist. Christy Blatchford has died at the age of 68. She was undergoing treatment for lung cancer at Princess Margaret. She's a tenacious reporter, a social critic, and she leaves behind a large body of work and an enormous influence on journalism in this country. She joined the Globe and Mail in 1972 while studying journalism at Ryerson. She spent the first four years as a sports columnist. After that, she worked for The Star, The Sun, The National Post more than once. Blatchford was inducted into the Canadian News Hall of Fame last November, but was too unwell to attend him. She was also the author of a number of nonfiction books, including 15 Days, Stories of Bravery, Friendship, Life, and Death from Inside the New Canadian Army, and it won the 2008 Governor General's Literary Award for Nonfiction. To talk more about Christy Blatchford, I'm joined by two people who knew her and worked with her, Allison Jones, is the Canadian Press reporter at Queen's Park, and Mackay Taggart is the news director at Global News Toronto. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Alan. Mackay, let's begin with you and your experience working with Christy. She was thorny, she could be a curmudgeon, but she also was incredibly warm. Yeah, she was scary as hell. Uh, for me, as a, as a young radio producer starting out my career at another radio station in Toronto that Christy was a longtime contributor to, uh, part of my responsibility was to reach out to her every morning, early in the morning at 5.30, 5.45 in the morning, and uh, talk with her about possible topics uh, that she would discuss on the radio that day. And I was uh, young and didn't have the same, obviously, a few people do, the breadth and the knowledge that she had about events uh, in, occurring in the news and the perspective she had, but it was my job to pitch her. And it was the scariest part of my day, but it was also the most rewarding and the, the part of my day I look forward to most because she had this way to way of um, uh, digesting news and, and uh, cutting through stories that gave perspective that no one else could offer. And I felt really honored every morning to get a little bit of that perspective one-on-one -on -one, uh, in, the, in the minutes before she would then go on the radio and, and talk with the host about whatever the story of the day was. And she was, um, yeah, she was scary, but uh, because she didn't suffer fools and she knew uh, what she wanted to say, knew how to say it. And as a young person in the industry, that was kind of intimidating. But I also learned an immense from her. And she's one of those people who, when you, when you got a compliment from her, um, which she was which she gave often, it felt like it, it carried a lot of weight. Allison, your experience working with Christy? Yeah, I, I worked with her most closely um, in the maybe five or six years that I was primarily covering the courts, which anyone who's, who's read her columns knows she covered the courts a lot too. And, you know, we covered some of the most absolutely horrible um, murder trials together and what always struck me was her humanity um you know people people who just read her columns and didn't know christy probably would just see the the cutting side as Mackay said the very you know sort of acerbic um sharp-tongued writer but but in person there was such a, a different 
side to her. Uh, I, I'm hard pressed to think of any you know trial that that we covered together where she wasn't crying at some point or another. She was honestly just constantly weeping in the courtroom. She felt such empathy for the victims and and the victims' families and her. Her kindness and empathy extended to her colleagues as well, particularly her young colleagues. Um, I was you know, pretty junior, so when I was covering the courts and the the kindness that she extended to me, giving me advice often, and you know, going out of her way to to introduce me to to big shot lawyers or other people who would be helpful to know, or giving me court documents that she had gone out of her way to get just for herself. Um, that really to me was was trademark Christie and I know I'm not alone you know I saw her just help out so many young journalists and and as Mackay said she was so effusive with praise too she was she was constantly complimenting people and and lifting other journalists up particularly young ones and Mackay I, I can agree I, I I had some experiences too where she would say something nice and I just I felt like my feet you know, did not touch the floor for the rest of the day after she said something nice about something that I had put on television. But I also recall that she is it was a force herself within the courtroom. I have never seen this before, but I remember being at a trial where she stood up at Old City Hall in the middle of it and admonished the judge for the fact that she could not hear what he had to say. It was incredible. And I'm sure that judge was f- probably shaking in his boots too, because uh, that 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 that's the type of uh, person she was. Where when she said something, she had a lot of conviction and, and meant it. And and whether it be be positive or negative, I remember uh, early in my career, and I've um, the vast majority of my career in media, I've spent behind the scenes. But I wrote an article once for the National Post, and it was the first time I'd had an article published in a national newspaper, and it happened to be her newspaper. She didn't know that I had I had uh, been talking to an editor there and had p- proposed an article, and uh, the morning it was published, I see an email pop up in my inbox from Christy Blatchford, and I and I hesitated before opening because I thought, oh man, is she going to just tear this apart? I'm not a print reporter. I don't know what I'm doing. And she had the kindest things to say, and probably there was a lot of critical uh, feedback she could have given, but in that moment, she just was so supportive and, and, and seemingly proud, and it meant so much to have her read my work in her newspaper and compliment me on it. And I, I actually today went back and was digging through my emails trying to see if I could find that, that note from her because it meant so much, but she just and and she was as as Allison points out a, a, a human being and and very human in, in her in the way that she covered uh, the work that she did every morning when I would call her for this radio segment almost inevitably uh, she would have to shush her dog Obi who was her uh, you know trusted companion and would be barking in the background and so you'd hear her sort of launching this tirade about whatever you know politician had had uh, aired the day before and then she would pause and 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 lean over to her dog and, and give him a treat or ask him to be quiet. And so you, you saw in this, in the, you know, in an instant, her switch from that, from that uh, cutting journalist to that uh, loving dog mom. Allison, it's difficult to sum up the importance of Christy on journalism as a whole. You talk about her mentorship of young journalists, but I also think that, you know, she made court fascinating. She she made the the entire system and, and an understanding of how court works for the general public that I don't think we have ever had. 
She did, and she really had um, such a unique style. It, it always seemed to me to be a blend of uh, straight-up reporter and straight-up columnist. It was a little bit of both. You know, there was she was writing columns, and it was injected with uh, a lot of color and uh, opinion and analysis that you wouldn't see in a straight-up news piece. But at the core, it was so so well reported, and she was always on the ground in the courtrooms, um, as uh, Adrian Humphreys pointed out in his beautiful obit of her in the National Post um, today. She, if you ever tried to to be first in line for for a court case, thinking, <laughs> "Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get there at 6 a.m. and I'm gonna be the first. I'm gonna get the best spot." Uh, no, Christy would have beaten you there by an hour but you know i think her her impact spans so many genres too she was such a trailblazer in terms of being a a female sports uh reporter as well she covered a lot of sports she covered a lot of courts she covered a lot of politics um and really at the core of it was always uh reporting she was always out there in the trenches um sometimes i think quite literally when she was in afghanistan she, she. I remember working with her at the time that she she took leave from her uh, daily reporting duties and radio commentary duties to to work on the book Fifteen Days uh, about the men and women who served in Afghanistan um, for Canada. And I grew up in a generation where most of the people I knew had never served in the military, never even thought of serving in the military. And yet she told stories about a young generation of Canadians who were doing that in a combat zone for the first time in a generation. And um, I remember reading that book, and it really changed my understanding and the way in which I viewed the Canadian soldier and um, and and I think that that her ability to see the um, the personal stories in the lives of these men and women and she was truly invested I remember uh, she was a, a big advocate for for the highway of heroes and and for taking time when bodies of Canadian soldiers were repatriated um, for for all Canadians to take note of that and um, and it was something, a contribution that, that I think has had a lasting impact in our country. We have to leave it there. Makai Taggart, News Director with Global Toronto, and Allison Jones, Canadian Press Reporter at Queen's Park. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Of course. Christy Blatchford, gone at 68. Welcome back to the program, There is a Scam that seems to be growing and going around, and it all involves your phone and porting of your phone number. Our consumer reporter, Sean O'Shea, is on the line with more details on what's going on. Hi, Sean. Hi, good afternoon, Alan. So what is this scam, and how does it work? It's pretty simple in a way. It's, it's when you want to get your phone ported to another carrier. Let's say a consumer wants to change from carrier X to carrier Y. Porting the number means they take your physical phone number from one carrier to another. Seems pretty straightforward, and it's what was called for many years ago when when people switching wanted to be able to keep their phone number. But these scammers have figured out a way to be able to harness uh, your phone number, and in so doing, frequently, as we've seen with a customer who we're going to have on television on Global News tonight at 5.30, frequently that phone number can be used to then get into your bank account information, your credit cards, all of that, because many people have, as maybe you and I both do, something called uh, uh, second-party verification. So, uh, you know, your phone number is what's needed to confirm that you're making a switch on a various on, a, on another kind of a program. So they're, they're getting into these, and the problem is, in the case of the story we're talking about tonight, Rogers, the carrier, 
very quickly process this. And in that limited amount of time, these scammers were able to do a lot of damage, cost this person a lot of money and a lot of trouble. So even though that this person knew that this was, was happening, or at least had alerted uh, the phone carrier, it just did not happen fast enough in, in, in term, and that window is where the scam happens? I should be a little bit more clear. What happened was this customer got a text notification from Rogers saying, are you the one who is trying to port your number to another carrier? She just happened to notice this text at 10-something in the evening. It was not her. She didn't ask for this to, to happen. It was the scammers at work. She called Rogers, was put on hold for about 24 minutes, told them she wasn't trying to do this, and it took Rogers almost a full day to be able to correct the problem, to go and get her number back. In the meantime, the scammers had gotten into her bank records, they'd gotten into her uh, credit card, uh, they got into her iCloud information, where all of her photos and documents were, caused a lot of damage. It's not unique. It's a problem. The industry recognizes that it's a problem, but it's a problem that could hit just about anybody who's got a mobile phone number, which is just about everybody in Canada these days. This is one of those things that seems like it's difficult to protect yourself against in any way. It is pretty tough. Rogers told us that they've, since uh, hearing about more of these, they've now put in certain other protections. For example, you can call Rogers. I'm using that carrier as an example because that's the one in the case we're talking about today. And you can tell them, listen, uh, do not port my number um, uh, unless there's more verification. But this question really raises questions about why in a matter of a few minutes they would not require some kind of positive verification. In other words, you know, Alan, you've you've asked to move your phone from this carrier to that number. Why would they not want to talk to you first or get some positive confirmation? Your bank would ask for that. Uh, the phone number really represents a big piece of your life now, and especially because, as I said, you're using that phone number frequently when you're changing a Twitter account. You know, they, they use the phone number to call you back. You put in a code and say, yeah, that's actually me. So the questions are being raised about whether the phone company should be forced to do a little bit more. Now, in fairness to the phone companies, the CRTC issued some, some guidelines back in the late 2000s, around 2006, saying that they had to process these ports in a reasonably timely way in about two and a half hours. But you'd still expect that the companies are going to apply some due diligence and are not going to take, um, are going to take steps to make sure that your privacy is not compromised. That's the, that's the meat of it here. And you alluded to it earlier, there's not a lot people can do, but I would say that if you want to protect yourself, you call the phone company and you let them know, listen, if anybody's ever trying to, if somebody's requesting that this number be ported, you got to ask me, confirm with me before you do anything. Sean O'Shea is our Global News Consumer Reporter. Looking forward to your report tonight on Global at 5.30 and 6. Thanks, Sean. Thanks a lot, Al. Have a great day. Big, big news in the canine world. The Golden Retriever was robbed. Just this is jaw-dropping. I want to take you to Madison Square Garden with the crowd firmly chanting for Daniel, the Golden Retriever, and then Judge Bob Slay announces the Best in Show winner. The Best in Show goes to the Standard Pooh. Yes! Wow! Yes! Wow! Steve no. it Seba, a poodle. A poodle? What happened? How is it possible that a lovable golden retriever can be beaten out by a perfectly primped and poised poodle?
Even with the crowd at Madison Square Garden chanting for a popular golden retriever, the statuesque Seba strutted off with best in show. Adorned with black puffs and pom-poms, the three-year-old Seba was the absolute picture of what many see as the epitome of a show dog. Not everyone shared that view as Judge Bob Slay studied Sheba in the best of seven final ring. A fan shouted out, no way, Slay, no way, but he voted for her anyway. The Westminster winner receives no prize money in a sport where owners can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on their dog. Julie Walker, New York. So let me get this straight. The retriever wins the popular vote, but what about those emails she shredded when you came home late from the bar that night? And so now, for the rest of Seba's term as top dog, any criticism of Seba's actions will be met with, well, you're just trying to overturn the election. Great name, by the way. Thank you, Sheba. <laughs> I tell you, it's like it's the Trump White House in dog form. That is what this is. Soon, I predict, Seba will be impeached. Welcome back. We have breaking news from the teachers' unions. They have just announced that they will hold a full walkout. All unions will be all out. All schools will be closed on the 21st of February. That is next Friday. Travis Danraj is standing by where Stephen Lecce is giving a speech this morning, and the union members are in the room. There is expected to be some sort of a demonstration or some kind of an announcement. We're going to get to him in just a second. But once again, the 21st of February, that is a week Friday, all schools will be closed. And keep in mind that because Monday is a holiday, that's a four-day week anyway, but now Friday all schools across the province will be shut down. Travis Danraj is our Global News Queens Park Bureau Chief and joins me from downtown. Hi, Travis. Hey, Alan. How are you? Where are you now? So I am at the Royal York right now at uh, a luncheon given by the Canadian Club Toronto uh, and Minister Stephen Latcher, the Education Minister, is the keynote speaker. It's also interesting to note that all uh, four heads of the four major teachers' unions, uh, the French teachers, English, Catholic, uh, elementary, and high school, are all in this room right now. We just broke the news, as you saw, that uh, on the 21st, as you mentioned, the entire uh, public school system in this province is going to be shut down. Where did that release come from? Is that just a, a coordinator release? Because normally these come out sort of union by union. Yeah, so the actual news release from the unions has not uh, been issued yet. However, uh, it's gone out to members. Uh, something internal has gone out to union members uh, notifying them of this action. I mean, this certainly is an escalation uh, when, you know, we have seen previously, you know, one union out today in Toronto, uh, ETFO is out, but not en masse like this shutting down the entire system. It's going to be also be interesting to see what the union leaders have to say. Uh, we are told that they are going to be holding a news conference here uh, shortly after the minister speaks uh, while this luncheon is still going on to talk about this issue. So we'll see. It's kind of disrespectful. You know, like, would you put up with that in class, letting, you know, letting the kids uh, hold a conference, a news conference while you're trying to speak? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, 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 I was surprised to see them in this room, but apparently they bought tickets to it. Uh, <laughs> education ministry. I mean, it's, it's a little awkward, right? The awkward. Education minister walking in past all of the union leadership that he uh, and his team are fighting with right now. And demonizing uh, every opportunity they can get. Yeah, they did not. They did not acknowledge uh, each other, and uh, I didn't see any uh, clapping when uh, the minister of education was announced. At least from that table, is anybody going to throw like a crescent roll or anything like that? Is there a food <laughs> fight coming? It, it certainly will be interesting. But security, I'll tell you, is very tight here right now because outside on Front Street, from University all the way to Bay, there are uh, ETSO members and also members of other unions that have a huge. Pick- line right outside of this hotel. They want their message known to Minister Lecce. Certainly, uh, he is well aware that they're outside, well aware that the union leadership is inside. We're told as well that he is now going to be, he wasn't going to talk to media today, but now that this news has broken, he will also be talking to media at some point this afternoon. You expect him to say anything different than he's been saying the last couple of weeks? No, I, nor do I expect the union to this, uh, leadership to say anything different than we have uh, seen the last couple of weeks. I mean, this is like, you know, Groundhog Day every know. single week. And, uh, you know, we're, we're on a path uh, towards back-to-work legislation. Oh, but, but are we, though? Are we, though? Because here's well, the thing. I mean, like, is that as, as we talked about, it's this kind of shadowy committee that decides, and we yeah. have to actually have a school year in jeopardy before that can happen. Yeah, and I mean, we will get to that point at some, uh, you know, maybe end of March, maybe even after that in April. But I mean, it's it's headed down toward that direction. But you're right, the unions, because they're taking this tactic of rotating strikes, they're not uh, accruing all those days that they would if it was a full-fledged uh, walkout where you saw, you know, uh, unions out every single day of the, the school week. And so elementary teachers, they went with two days uh, the last couple of weeks. They've gone with one full right across the province and one rotating. So now they have a full with all the rest of the teachers on the 21st. Is there going to be another day for ETFO in terms of rotating strikes next week, too? Well, we have not heard that just yet, but remember, they have to give five days notice, so they would have to give notice pretty quick here if they did intend on doing rotating strikes next week. Uh, so, I mean, this might be the new tactic, you know, uh, Freedom Fridays. <laughs> <laughs> so we shall see, but I mean, it seems like, uh, you know, uh, some of the students are on a similar schedule to the MPPs now. Ah, sweet <laughs> long weekends for the kids. All right, Travis Danridge, uh, keeping an eye on that situation downtown for us. Thanks, Travis. Appreciate it. All right, Al. Thank you. Uh, I want to do a quick update on the no longer called coronavirus. It's no longer known as that. What is it called now? C-O-V-I-D hyphen one nine. COVID-19. Oh, that's snappy. That is snappy. An update here. One patient has jumped out of a hospital window to escape her quarantine. Another managed to break out by disabling by disabling an electronic lock. Two Russian women, kept in isolation for possible infection by the new virus, have fled their Russian hospitals. You got that going on. Meanwhile, the Chinese government plans to help industries hit hard by... What's it called again? Anybody? I, it, I, it keeps COVID-19. Ah, right. Thank you, Director General of the WHO. Here is Tom Rivers with more on what's happening inside of China right now. President Xi is promising tax cuts and other aid to businesses badly affected by the outbreak. 
in a renewed effort to rein in the rising damage to the Chinese economy. His announcement comes as companies there face increasing losses due to the closure of factories, offices, shops, and other businesses in the most sweeping anti-disease measures ever imposed. While some businesses are now beginning to reopen, many face heavy losses. And, of course, that will continue to cascade. We have a worldwide economy, and as China slows because of the outbreak of COVID-19, that is going to have a widening impact on the world economy. New Hampshire, anybody? Anybody? New Hampshire? Bernie Sanders winning the primary, edging out moderate rival Pete Buttigieg, scoring a clear victory in the chaotic 2020 nomination fight from the Democratic Party. What about Amy Klobuchar? Here's Reggie Cicchini on her surprising finish last night. That argument that they've been putting out for the last kind of year or so that only Biden can beat Donald Trump when they go head to head is starting to be undercut by people like Amy Klobuchar, who can get more support than uh, than the vice president and who appears to be resonating more with this moderate middle of the road voter who's not ready to go for someone like Elizabeth Warren. So is the anybody but Sanders camp now having a good look at Amy? Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden posting disappointing fourth and fifth place finishes, respectively. They're on track to finish with zero delegates from the state. Here's reporter Mary Bruce. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren needed a boost close to home. At fourth place, she fell short, but is vowing to fight to the finish. Our campaign is built for the long haul. We are just getting started. And the one-time frontrunner, Fallen. Former Vice President Joe Biden coming in a distant fifth. That is reporter Mary Bruce, Andrew Yang, and Michael Bennett have both dropped out of the race. So that's your update from New Hampshire. You know what? Cash. It's about the cash. Cash rules everything around me. It's all about the dollar-dollar bills. I have a great Wu-Tang story for you. It comes from Atlanta. Thieves, who posed as rap industry figures, managed to scam more than $100,000 from some of the most exclusive hotels in the South. The group told workers they were worth with the entertainment firm Rock Nation, that's Jay-Z's firm, and listed the group Wu-Tang Clan... As one of their clients. The Georgian Terrace Hotel in Atlanta was left with a $45,000 unpaid bill. The Hyatt Regency in Atlanta said they walked away with a $39,000 tab. Why would they believe these guys? Well, you know why? They rolled up in a Rolls Royce Phantom. Guess where they got that? A national limousine, which has reported a loss now of nearly $60,000. Turns out, they weren't paying for it. All of it, just a scam. Two guys now have been arrested and charged. Because cash. Cash rules everything around me. Cream, get the money. Dollar, dollar bill, yo. Cash rules everything around me. Dollar, dollar bill. Join me tonight, won't you? 5.30 on Global News with my co-anchor Farah Nasser, simulcast on this radio station at 6, and then I'm off for a couple of days. 
Sheba, did you know this? I didn't know this either. Did Sheba, I am away. I'm going south. Wait, this week? Where are you going? I'm going to Mexico with my kids, and my 11-year-old son is thrilled about it, and I have a 14-year-old daughter, and that's all you need to know about that. Please don't bring back the uh, COVID-19 with you. That's xenophobic of you to even suggest. <laughs>